My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I'd always stayed away from finance um, and I was a little bit frightened of finance. It seemed a bit complicated and um, someone very wise who works there said to me, but that's perfect because you can explain it to people like yourself out there in the world. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Kate Brown, Managing Editor of Finder, Australia's largest and most visited comparison site. She shares how she took her time figuring out what kind of career path she wanted, traveled around the world, appeared on Channel 7 Sunrise and fell in love with property and finance and much, much more. Kate Brown was a lifestyle editor and investigative journalist at Choice before Finder. She has also written for prominent Australian newspapers such as the Sydney Morning Herald, Sun Herald, Sunday Telegraph and Australian to name a few. She delves into what her job at Finder entails as her role encompasses many aspects. I'm the managing editor of finder.com.au or Finder as we just call it, which is one of Australia's, well, it's Australia's largest, most visited comparison site. Uh, we cover a whole bunch of things, but we do really zero in on things like finance, um, personal finance, superannuation, all the insurances, um, travel, shopping, um, a whole range of things. But really, Finder exists to help people make better decisions. Um, and part of my role, uh, beyond being the managing editor, I'm also the host of Pocket Money, which is uh, the Finder podcast, and I'm one of the media spokespeople for Finder as well. We find out what a typical day for Brown is like, as well as a bit about her communications background. My background is fairly unusual. I've come from a background of journalism, but I've also done a lot of TV and broadcast work. And for me, it's all content. So I, I think these days with digital, um, you know, uh, my job's really interesting. So day to day, I'm responsible for managing the finder.com.au website, uh, working with the writers, the publishers. Uh, working with our p- amazing PR and media team to look at getting stories out to the general media as well um, and being a spokesperson for Finder. So, for example, yesterday I was editing um, stories. I was putting together our own podcast. I then um, hopped out of my tracksuit pants and put on decent clothes to do an interview with Sunrise on Channel 7 in front of my house to talk about personal finance, uh, pop back into my pyjamas to then... Um, 
run a meeting with my team and um, talk about some of the things we're going to do coming up in the next couple of months. So it's a really varied job and, and that's why I really like it a lot. And you must be feeling so privileged to be able to talk about that all in, and, and share all that behind the scenes as well too because it sounds so exciting. I mean, it's all the glitz and the glam and stuff in front of the TV but uh, at the same time, you get to do it from home. <laughs> It's true. And I did take a photo yesterday because, uh, you know, the, behind the Glamour Tyrone, I think the photo of me wearing uh, jeans and bare feet standing out the front of my house. But from sort of the waist up, I had a really nice top on, loads of makeup, um, <laughs> cameraman shooting while my neighbours were wandering past like, what are you doing? Is, is the, something happened to the street? Um, but yeah, I love um, I love the news environment. So I love I, I'm at my best I think when I'm on my feet. So if I get a call and say you got to do a, me- a media interview in half an hour, um, that kind of stuff doesn't phase me weirdly. I really enjoy the challenge, and I really enjoy taking complicated information and, and making it sort of palatable and understandable because that's sort of where I came from um, in terms of understanding stuff to do with finance or consumer stuff. My background is consumer journalism so it's taking boring perceived as boring or complicated topics and breaking them right down prior to the glitz and glam brown shares with us her upbringing in new south wales born and raised in sydney um i feel like i'm one of the few people (laughs) who can say that um actually my partner was born in sydney but then he lived in the uk um yeah born and raised in sydney uh Grew up in the sort of Hornsby area, so Normanhurst, Hornsby area, um, so quite suburban. Um, uh, I think it's given me a bit of a lifelong fear of living in the suburbs. My mum didn't drive, so I spent a lot of time living in that area, catching lifts off other people and and doing very long walks. So I think um, as soon as I could escape to the inner city, I did. Ironically, then I didn't drive myself for years, which is kind of funny. But um, I, I blame it on living in the inner city. Um, so moved to moved to the Sydney's inner west when I was about twenty, um, and I've lived pretty much in the inner west uh, most of my life, apart from living overseas for a couple of years here and there, and living in Bondi for a year when I met my partner, who who enticed me to the the eastern suburbs, um, and I really enjoyed living there. And then uh, when it came time to buy a house and start a family, we Surprise, surprise, ended up back in the inner west. Growing up in a northern districts area, she delves into her childhood education. I went to Hornsby South Primary School, which was a really cute little school, and I really enjoyed school. Um, I, I loved it from the day I started. My mum used to laugh. Um, I'm one of four kids. Two, uh, there's two girls and two boys. I'm the youngest. And my mum said my sister and myself just walked into school on the first day in kindy and never looked back. And both brothers cried <laughs> um, for many weeks. And one brother is famous for saying, can't I just go sometimes? Um, so I think um, it's interesting. Maybe girls are, I think girls sometimes mature a little bit earlier than boys. And um, I loved school. Went to high school in Hornsby. I went to Hornsby Girls, uh, which is an amazing school. I loved high school. I've, I've, I've always feel left out when people share their terrible high school stories because I definitely didn't have those. Um, it was a great school for being learning to be a good feminist for a start, um, you know, this is in the this is in the late 80s, and you know we were taught to be you know always that girls were equal to boys, if not better. Um, you know a bit of indoctrinating there, which was great. Um, and I think there was also a lot of freedom for me personally, being at a, a girls only school. Um, there wasn't the distraction of boys. We were quite rowdy. I remember we went on a school excursion once with a co-ed school, and all of us girls, Hornsby girls, barreled under the bus and pushed all the boys off the back seat. And the teacher from the co-ed school was like. 
oh, but you're meant to be ladies. And we were like, what? Um, so we didn't have that kind of weird gender. I mean, a lot of that's gone away. And interestingly, my own child now begged to go to a co-ed school. I think things have changed a lot, but I really valued um, Hornsby Girls for that. Um, they placed a lot of value on being academically um, inclined and to achieve, but also um, good focus on the arts, which I was really passionate about. Great music program, great art program. So I had a really happy school environment and I'm still friends with um, women I went to school with now. And um, yeah, I'm really proud of that. A lot of people walk out of high school and be like, never again. See you later. I'm not coming back. <laughs> Totally. And so uh, I really valued that. And I think I learned a lot of really good lessons at that school. Didn't, didn't, do, didn't do so well when I left the um, school environment to go to university. That took a few goes. Brown reveals how she transitioned from high school to university and how she was interested in communications. I think this is a good story for people freaking out about the HSC. I did pretty well in the HSC. I was a bit of a lazy student though, I, but I was excellent at writing essays, which is how I think I ended up in journalism. Uh, and I was a quick study, so I could read something and regurgitate it really quickly. It's pretty hilarious. I've fallen into a job where that's what I do for a living. I'm not recommending that though. Um, when I left school though, I think I wasn't really ready to leave school. I remember feeling quite sad about it and I went to Sydney Uni to do an arts degree and really when I look back, I don't know why. I, I, I think I wanted to do communications and I didn't get in. I wanted to do journalism. I didn't get in. The, um, the marks were super high. So I thought, oh, Sydney Uni, that looks really gorgeous. I mean, great way to base your you know, university choice. It's beautiful <laughs> buildings. It is. It's classic. Um, it is very classic. Uh, long trip from Normanhurst, but worth it. Um, and within a couple of months, I was sinking. I was drowning. I had no idea why I was there. Um, because you are given a lot of freedom at university, I was like, oh, you know, if no one cares if I turn up to lectures, maybe I won't. Um, you know, the logic that only an 18-year-old can apply to, uh, to study. And I ended up dropping out. And I remember being really sad, but I just felt like a real fish out of water. And of course, my parents were like, well, you have to get a job. And I was like, oh, oh God, I do. So I went away and worked for two years and I worked as a receptionist um, and learned that I was the world's most disorganized receptionist um, and very messy and uh, had three jobs, uh, one of which I got sacked from because I used to turn up late uh, a lot and thought it was really unreasonable that they wanted me there at nine, which I... <laughs> I'm loving you these <laughs> I look back and think, oh my God, you know, and I see my own, now I, I have a 12 year old, she's starting to tween and I, you know, now I understand the logic. I think I was quite immature. So long story short, those two years were really actually very instructive because I realized I didn't want to stay working in office work. Uh, I was a terrible receptionist. A lot of people are amazing office managers. I was not one of them. And I realized that, that was a poor fit for me. What it did do is finally kind of kicked me up the bum to reapply to uni and be really focused about what I wanted to do. And I guess for anyone who's stressing about the HSE, um, you know, two years out of school, I was already considered a mature age student. I applied to UTS to do social science with a major in communications. And I got in basically off the back of the essay I wrote about why I thought I should be allowed in. I had a really elderly boss who called me honey and asked me to make cups of tea, which I refused to do, which eventually he found kind of funny. But for me, I was like, this isn't this isn't what I want to do for life. Um, and it really, for the first time um, at that age, so I was 20 by then, 
laser-like focus on getting into this course. And I got in, I couldn't believe it. And I worked really, really hard when I was at uni the second time around, almost because I was like, did they let me in by mistake? Um, you know, a uh, bit of imposter syndrome and, and I worked my backside off um, then. So I think it's, I really like sharing that story because I think there's a lot of focus on being successful from the get-go or, you know, around the HSC, it's not. And really, if I'd got into comms straight from school, I reckon I might have dropped out anyway. I kind of needed that time out in the wild um, to really focus me. Some people have that natural focus, but for me, you know, when you're 18, you're a bit silly still. So um, that was very instructive and I had to do that on my own. My parents were pretty angry with me for dropping out of uni and kind of washed their hands with the whole thing. Um, so when I got back in, I really did that on my own uh, and they were a bit like, you're just going to drop out again? And I was like, oh, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, <laughs> and you certainly so did. <laughs> it, it did. So I think I think learning, you know, and like I said, as I'm a, I am a parent now of two daughters, I want them to build up that kind of drive and resilience a bit earlier. And I think schools probably do that a little better now. My school was very much like this lovely warm nest, you know, but then we got kicked out. It was like, my God, what is this? Um, so for me, I really needed those couple of years. And I think I've recommended this to, you know, other young people I've met. It's okay to have a couple of years out in the wild and learn some stuff. Looking back on her years at school and the kind of mindset she had, Brown realizes how the schooling system has changed over the years. I've noticed even now my, my, my oldest daughter's just started year seven, bad year to start year seven. She's only there for five weeks and now she's in, in her bedroom on her laptop, supposedly learning from home. But actually, I've noticed how, how student driven it is and there is an expectation for her to look after herself. And she's already had a few kicks up the bum. Not, not, not from me, but from, from learning. And in fact, even last night, she said, oh, I've got three assignments due next week on the same day. And I'm like, hmm, um, maybe you need to, you know, start one of them now. Um, but I think, you know, you learn a lot of lessons you learn in life by doing, not just being told. It's a rare person that goes, oh, thanks for telling me that lesson. You know, a lot of people need to learn. And, yeah, I'm a massive advocate for gap year. I um, didn't have one in terms of going overseas. I had one after I left uni, actually, and that that probably was the... the I had a year overseas after I left uni, um, worked at a summer camp in America in oh, the deep south, which nice. was pretty wild. Um, learned a lot there. I lived in the UK, went traveling on my own through Turkey and Egypt. And I remember when I came home, people were like, wow, what's happened to you? Like you've really grown up. So almost I feel like that that year out mm. after the three years at uni was the, the final polish. <laughs> Finally came back <laughs> as a proper adult. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember, you know, like thinking, you know, this is, um, you know, I was traveling alone, pre-internet, um, I'm showing my age, <laughs> um, and, and be, losing my wallet in New York City and just thinking, oh, my God, like I, I can only rely on myself and I actually got it back. But I remember there was a couple of hours where there I was like, okay, okay, you've got this, you can do this. Um but very formative, you know, and I really realized, you know, A, I was like, oh, I'm quite proud of myself. Um, but, yeah, traveling alone, um, going to country. I remember when I got to the States crying on the first night. I was very jet lagged, crying in my hotel room going, I don't know anyone <laughs> in the whole country. Um, <laughs> it's isolated. scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was terrified and I thought everyone was going to murder me or 
you know, mug me. And, you know, of course, as soon as I started at the summer camp, I met a million people and people from all over the world and had an amazing time. But yeah, I think travel is a great thing for young people to do. And yeah, it's an investment in kind of, you know, your growing up. Brown goes on to explain how she found herself in American summer camp after completing her university degree. They're less popular for Australians, but I'd met another um, woman when I was at uni that was going to go and do one. Um, suspiciously, I never heard what happened after she left to go there. <laughs> so I, I put that bit out of my mind. It's very um, common in the U- UK. So because the summers align with the US and the UK, you basically you go as a volunteer and if you live in the UK, you get a free airfare chucked in and you get kind of minimum wage and you work. Um, yeah, not bad. For Australia, our way, our flight was subsidised, but I actually just bought a round-the-world ticket because I was going to be away for a year. Um, so you apply. I'd worked in an after-school care centre when I was at uni, so that was my part-time job when I was at uni, which was funny because I was like, ugh, I'd hate children. Um, and then I realised working with kids was really fun. So that was kind of weird as well. Um, and, and after-school care was great, like, hours-wise, you know, you work sort of in the mornings or in the late afternoon and so it sort of suited my uni lifestyle um and so I thought I I can work with kids this is a this is a way of um you know um getting a fairly cheap trip you know a a structured activity so I knew I'd you know have an adventure but you know I'd probably meet other people um and off I went and I also just said look I'm happy to go anywhere I didn't want to say you could put in preferences for where you wanted to go uh, and I ended up, <laughs> I really did up anywhere. I ended up in a tiny little town in the deep south in the mountains, which is right down south, um, real hillbilly kind of town um, where people were Bible thumping, gun toting, moonshine drinking uh, folk. Weirdly, the camp was for very wealthy children from Miami, but because the weather is so bad in Miami in the summer, it's so hot, they send them up to Georgia, which is quite mountainous and a bit cooler for the summer. So the kids hilariously were very urban, very wealthy, terrified of the outdoors. Um, We're all there from the UK and Australia and New Zealand just going, what the hell, like, what are we doing here? Um, So the local town was quite literally full of, like, tobacco-chewing, gun-toting, hillbillies, God-fearing hillbillies. But the kids were like incredibly sophisticated Miami urbanites um, who were like, is there any security here? Like none of them like were used to going hiking. They'd all cry. Like, um, yeah, so we were all thrown in the deep end together. And it was possibly one of the hardest things I've ever done. I had to live in a cabin with 12 nine-year-old girls and we shared a bathroom. Um, and I just sleep in a in a in a bunk uh, with them. And then by day, I was sort of teaching art and craft, so the kids can do all sorts of activities. And it looked just like every movie you've ever seen, where there's a summer camp involved, with the little yellow Simpsons buses, the cabins. Um, but what I did love, a again, it really challenged me, you know, to dig deep because kids are pretty frustrating. <laughs> Saying that now, I'm a parent, um, you know. I, there was a lot of negotiating and a lot of having to, you know, get everyone to do stuff. Um, a lot 
of, you know, putting out fires, sometimes figuratively, literally sometimes. Um, and just that, you know, there was a, and dealing with a different culture, Americans are so full on and the kids were so full on and very open and loud. And that to me was hilarious. And then working with a bunch of people from the UK who were different again. Um, I'm very proud to say, well, I, I, I'm still friends with this guy. He'd been in the army in the UK. And he quit the camp because it was too hard. So <laughs> now that's a complete hilarious point of view because usually the army guys are the ones who you know push yeah, through. Yeah, so the rest of us are like, yeah. yeah. He's like, you know, he used to jump out of planes with a parachute and did a tour of Northern Ireland, are you but he found me? the kids too hard. Um, so that was a, that was a great experience, and I've still got friends that I met from that day, um, from that time. In you know, in the UK, in the US, and New Zealand, and weirdly, that's actually how I met my husband. I met a whole lot of friends from around the world: UK, the US, New Zealand. Um, weirdly, I even met someone who ended up introducing me to my husband. Um, he wasn't at the camp, and he's Australian. Um, she's from the UK, and she actually introduced us. And bizarrely, um, my husband actually grew up near Hornsby. So. <laughs> What a small world. I know. Um, she she met him when he was living and working in London and because we'd we'd formed a real bond working on the summer camp, we stayed in we stayed in touch for years. And um when she came out to Australia, he'd moved back here and she introduced us. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> you know the way it comes back to small world, wow. We figured we'd probably walk past each other at Hornsby Westfield, you know, when we're teenagers and ugh. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and yeah. it's like, oh, now we're husband and wife. <laughs> exactly. He was from a fancy private school too. So I was like, oh, you were probably just like, ugh, you know, Hornsby girls. Coming up after the break, we take a look at how Kate Brown started her career using her journalism degree. I took a job at the Opera House, Sydney Opera House. That was amazing. So I was working in sponsorship, so working with corporate sponsors, but working with them around media messaging, promoting their brand with the Opera Houses, and that was a really fun, creative job. How she found herself in management. I slowly then moved into managing a team. So by by the end of my career at Choice, I was a lifestyle editor. So I was running a team of about five journalists, an investigative journalist. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sharp, and you're listening to Property Investory. After returning to Australia, Brown talks about the jobs she found herself in. So I got back to Australia in the sort of mid-90s um, and basically still wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself. So, um, and jobs are, we were coming out of recession, so jobs were still in fairly short supply. Um, and again, I just, you know, I still didn't know what I wanted to do career-wise. I wanted to work in journalism, but there weren't a lot of jobs at that point. And I think I still suffered from, suffered from a bit of lack of confidence. So I sort of fell into working at Optus, which was still in startup mode then. Um, you know, this is in the days when, you know, for all the young kids out there, uh, we used, you know, there was only Telstra um, when I was sort of a teenager and, and a young person. And then Optus came on the scene and provided like this actual 
market, you know, where there was competition. And actually, it was a great place to work. It was There was a lot of money at, when Optus started up, a lot of investment in their staff. Um, I worked in customer service for a while. I worked as an account manager and got used to sort of angry um, corporates calling me. Um, and actually, and, and looking back, I, A, it was just really good training in business. Um, it is a very unorthodox way to get into journalism. Um, but again, I think I learned a lot of skills and I learned about working in the corporate world. I, wor- I learned to work with difficult customers. Again, I made some really great friends during that period. I worked a lot of shift work. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I decided, funnily enough, um, oh, hang on, I, I really you know, should do something with this journalism degree. And I'd started writing freelance while I was at Optus um, for a couple of like, music mags um, and a couple of street mags. And I was like, oh, they kept, I kept getting asked for more work. So I was like, Oh, actually, maybe I am quite, maybe I am okay at this kind of writing business and um, started to get paid a little bit of money, not enough to live on, but an, in, enough for pocket money. And then I um, took a job at the Opera House, um, Sydney Opera House. So um, that was amazing. So I was working in sponsorship. So working with corporate sponsors, but working with them um, around media messaging, um, uh, promoting their brand with, with the Opera Houses. And that was a really fun creative job uh, and used a lot of my writing skills yeah but still grounded in business because ultimately the sponsors those sponsors are what keeps the op- I mean the opera house is owned by the you know owned and run by the state government but to put on the shows to put on the events especially the free public events sponsorship is really where that comes into play so I was there for seven years and I had an amazing time it's a very exciting place to work what was the culture like there you would have done some amazing things. That's right. The building alone is not going to get you there, right? So the culture was um, the culture was amazing. My boss used to joke because we had to, to go to our office. Our offices were in the opera house at the time. Um, I used to have to walk through stage door. Uh, you know, often past like famous people or opera singers, and then to get to our particular office, we had to walk under a huge sign that said "drama," and my boss used to joke that that applied to every department in the building, whether it was finance and accounts, corporate, sponsorship, media, marketing, um, a lot of, it attracted a lot of vibrant people. And I guess all of us were really passionate about the arts. Um, so even, you know, even the people doing accounts, doing payroll was super invested in the building, the culture. And, and we were felt, we were all felt um, made to feel really important. So all of us had access to free tickets to shows and we were encouraged to go to shows. Um, all of us were encouraged to attend all the events. Um, they're extremely generous with things like New Year's Eve. We'd all be allowed to go to, you know, the events there and have tickets to, you know, the free events or some of the ticketed events. And I think that really made everyone feel like this was, you know, our building. Our, you know, we'd talk about our opera house and I think the culture there was really clever, um, particularly for public service, which can be a slow-moving environment environment the opera house was a lot more dynamic and probably a bit atypical a bit like the abc um where there's a lot of pride and i mean you walk outside and there's people taking photos of where you work (laughs) and you look back and it's you know it never got old for me i don't think there was a single day when i walked up to that building without just going oh um inside and out you know it, it changes with the weather um it's the beating heart of sydney and like i said there was always crazy stuff going on. I was there during the Olympics, so that was super exciting. Um, You know, there was during the um, Iraq war protesters when protesters climbed up on the sails and painted on the sails. 
you know, through all kinds of things. And, you know, there was never a day where something didn't happen that was a bit exciting. Such an iconic building. I mean, look at look at it for New Year's Eve. Everyone points their eyes straight on that next to the Harbour Bridge. It's like, <laughs> how could you not miss that? It was amazing and, and our, our original office was on the ground floor right at the front of the building so I looked almost directly into water. So I had boats going past my window. Um, you know, I could see the storms come in and leave and, and I worked with a really great team of, it was an all-woman team and we're all similar age, um, really dynamic. We really, you know, we, we, we got shit done but we had a lot of fun um, on the way and um, I, I really I really loved it and it did actually, again, I've had a very unorthodox, as you're probably guessing, I had a very unorthodox entry into kind of pure journalism but while I was working at the Opera House, I was also working as a freelancer by that stage for the Sydney Morning Herald um, and News Limited and doing a lot of feature writing and, and actually look, my boss at the time was very supportive of that too. She was often, you know, really helpful and supportive and that kept me really invested in my day job as well. After working at the Opera House for seven years, she goes on to share her next phase in her journey before she found herself at Finder. After I finished at the Opera House, uh, I met my now husband and we did what all mature 30-year-olds do and <laughs> quit our jobs and went overseas for a year. Um, we did and um, we, uh, we went to South America for nine months, travelled around South America, volunteered working with wild animals in Bolivia for a month. Um, Worked with uh, disadvantaged kids in Peru and then we came home sort of via Southeast Asia. Worked in the Elephant Orphanage as volunteers. Um, that was all very exciting. But actually that was a good reset because then what I I, I I remember saying after that year, also it's like in my early, very early 30s and I was like, okay, I need to get real. Like I want to be a journalist full time. And I said to Ed, my partner, that's it. I, that's what I want to do. And believe it or not, I, I was like, we're in Thailand on an island. I'm like, oh, I better start looking for jobs. We're going to go home soon. And I started looking and I saw a job at Choice, which is the Australian Consumers Association. They're looking for a journalist, um, part-time journalist. And I applied. And um, when I got back, I was really worried. They think, why has this woman been overseas for a year? And actually, they were fantastic. They also were very supportive of, you know, what I'd done and my freelancing and, and I got the job. So I worked at Choice um, first as a news journalist um, and I was still freelancing on the side. I then moved to becoming an investigative journalist so that was really exciting. Um, Chase a lot of big stories. Choice doesn't accept advertising or funding so Choice is very free to kind of pursue big companies, wrongdoings without any fear or favour and that was a really exciting time. I slowly then moved into managing a team. So by by the end of my career at Choice, I was a lifestyle editor. So I was running a team of about five journalists, an investigative journalist, health uh, writer, uh, food writer, working with our poli the policy team there who do a lot of campaigning for good work. And by then I had... Um, Fallen into media spokesperson work as well. I think, as you probably can tell by this interview, I don't mind talking. Um, and uh, we didn't have a media spokesperson at Choice for a little while and someone said, hey, do you think you could go on Sunrise and <laughs> talk about groceries? And I was like, okay. Uh, and that was a bit of a baptism of fire. So my ever, first ever TV appearance was on Sunrise being interviewed by David Koch. Um, and it couldn't have, it went okay on screen, but it couldn't have gone worse behind the scenes. They forgot to tell me when they needed me in the studio. 
So I was still sitting on a couch. They hadn't done my makeup properly, which is kind of a necessity on TV. As I was being chased into the studio, as they were saying, we're going live in 30 seconds. Um, I could feel someone unzipping the back of my dress and stuffing a microphone pack down the back of my dress and trying to zip it up. I kind of landed out in the studio floor. There's David Koch, who's a giant in real life. I'm like, oh, my God. And then it was like three, two, one. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if my dress is done up. Anyway, I did the interview. It turns out I performed well under pressure. So I did that and it was fine. Uh, no one knew that uh, everything that happened beforehand. So I started doing quite a bit of media work, which complemented like the work I was doing for Choice in terms of my investigation. So we did a lot of research, a lot of deep dives into things. Um, not uh yeah around that time as well i choice started working with abc um on a consumer affairs show called the checkout um which is weirdly uh, an idea from the guys who run the chaser so very very funny guys who worked in a lot of satire particularly around politics they wanted to do something on consumer stuff um julian morrow um who's very funny you know he said oh I'm a classic winger I'm always whinging about my consumer rights you know um I decided to make a whole show and we're gonna make it funny and I was like consumer affairs isn't funny sometimes it's just really boring and um I started I just started I met with them a couple of times at choice and had some story ideas and then I got a call from the CEO at choice at the time going can I talk to you and I'm like oh no what have I done I'm in trouble um, and he said, oh, the, the guys from The Chaser want to have a chat with you, oh, um, you know, about story ideas. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So I met with Craig Rucastle, Julian Morrow, Chaz Lichardello from The Chaser and suggested a couple of stories. And then um, I was a fairly new parent at that time. So I was like, there's a lot of consumer bullshit around parenting products and all the things you supposedly need. And Craig sort of suggested doing a, a parenting segment that we call the guilty mum rather than a busy mum, a guilty mum. Uh, so I started writing for that segment and doing a lot of research. And then the guys asked me, how do you feel about being on camera? Well, <laughs> like, oh, maybe. And then they were like, we think the only way to get away with this particular segment is to play a character you're going to have to act. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll give it a go. And so I sort of made this character secretly based on a few women in my mother's group um, and played this character um, really skewering all those products that are designed to make parents feel guilty. So they were very funny. I really enjoyed writing them. It was great therapy. <laughs> you know, it was like products like, I don't know, crash helmets for kids learning to walk. I mean, my God, like, you know, kids have been learning to walk for centuries. Um you know, baby yogurt that's twice the price as regular yogurt and doesn't have anything different in it. You know, I, I could go on. Um, and so I worked on the show and also did other segments as well. Um, and that was amazing. A, it, they were really generous to allow me in front of a camera and, and to be so creative and be to learn how to write scripts, which is very different from writing uh, to be read. You know, my first instincts when I started writing scripts was to talk everything. And they're like, you know, you've got, this is a visual medium. You can show, you don't have to tell. There's graphics, there's sound effects. Um, and I, I learned to write comedy with some of the funniest people in Australia, which was equally mortifying and instructive. Are you still doing any of those things right now? I'm not. Like, suddenly the checkout got axed um, in 2018, which was a real bummer. Um, it was they, uh, the ABC, I think, you know, it's really getting stripped bare. And the show, the show was pretty budget friendly, but because it wasn't a panel show, it, it was all scenario based, a lot of dress ups, a lot of um, props and stuff. They, they couldn't justify it, which was a real shame because for six years had really good ratings and was, you know, really helped people 
I, I was astonished. I was at an event once where uh, a bunch of boys from Normanhurst Boys um, at high school, their teacher came up and said, oh, the boys love the checkout. And I was like, wow. And they went, they really love your segment. I'm like, my segment is about being a mum, being a parent. And he said, yeah, but they like the fact you're, like, you're sort of taking the piss. And they really love the fact you're taking the piss out of these stupid products, not parents themselves. And I was like, okay, if you can get teenage boys interested, you know, like comedy is a really good hook to do that. So um, the checkout finished up. Um, I'd been at Choice for a long time. So I was looking for a new adventure and I was approached to join Finder. And um, the job for me was a real unicorn job because it's 50% media spokes work, 50% editorial, which is an unusual, usually people that work in editorial, not always, but a lot of those people don't want to front something on camera equally people that do media spokes work often don't do editorial so for me it was like oh this is an amazing job perfect um, yeah and um i've absolutely i've been a finder for a year and a half and it's extraordinary it's got the best culture of anywhere i've worked um even the opera house um it's a real can-do culture um very hands-on everyone jumps on things everything works at speed which i really appreciated after particularly after the opera house and choice who were a bit more a bit slower, a bit more old-fashioned in their approach. Um, choice is very cautionary, I guess, as well, because it you know it positions itself as being an expert, fine as expert as well. But what I learned is you can move fast, you can get something up and make it better as you go along, um, and you can chase stuff. And you can, you know, we have a, a core belief at Finder is you know, go live, you know, go live with something, give it a go, see how it happens. And for me, it's just been really refreshing. And um, you know, we're allowed to experiment a lot. Um, and you know, it's okay. And, and learning that it's okay to fail. Um, and in a way, ironically, we don't fail a lot, I think, because people don't have that fear. Um, so, you know, people really throw everything at something, throw it at the wall. Um, so it's a really great environment. We do so much work in the consumer area. But I guess for me, um, I was a little bit reticent about joining finance because it is so finance focused and I'd always stayed away from finance. Um, and I was a little bit frightened of finance. It seemed a bit complicated. And um, someone very wise who works there said to me, but that's perfect because you can explain it to people like yourself out there in the world. Not everyone's a finance expert. So speak to the regular people because they're the people that we want at Finder. You know, we're taking complex topics and breaking them down. That's right, yeah. Um, so for me, it's been really interesting. And what's been really unexpected is I've kind of fallen in love with finance. Um, <laughs> as we would banking. expect. Yeah, and even things like superannuation or, you know, insurance, like that. They affect your life and money, personal finance is everyone's life. So to ignore it is crazy because you can't ignore it. Like everyone's a consumer, everyone spends money, even my kids spend money. Um, and so you've got to know your money to do good things with it and, and make it worth your time. If you're going to work and earn money, which most people have to do, then you should do, do your time the justice by focusing on it. After listening to Kate Brown share her fascinating journey with finance as well as how she found herself at Finder, we'll keep the conversation going where we'll hear how she landed her first property. It took me probably a year longer than my parents expected but after two and a half years, I had enough money for a deposit on a very, very small apartment. 
The strategies she implements to successfully help her invest in property. Where can you save? It's a mindset, I think, for me. That was where the light bulb went off for me. Like I used to hear budget, like I said, and joke, oh, that means eating beans and not having coffee. Um, it's about looking for where you can cut the fat without compromising what you want to do day to day. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Invest Story. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone.